Amen. Let's, uh, let's show our appreciation of those children's workers. All right. Well, it's great to be back with you. If you've got your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew 7, 24 to 29. <coughs> I'll cough while you do that. Uh, today, we're coming to the end of our long, slow walk through the Sermon on the Mount in this closing section, Jesus has been talking to us in urgent, even binary terms. He's spoken about two roads. He's talked about two trees or uh, two types of prophet that we're likely to encounter along the road. And then now here in this last paragraph, he's talking to us about two houses or two types of builder. There is, of course, the wise builder and there is the foolish builder, the one whose house will not survive the coming storm. Hopefully you have your Bibles open now to Matthew 7. I'll be reading from verse 24 through to verse 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In order to understand this passage and respond to it the way I think the Lord intends for us to do, the first question we need to answer, obviously, has got to be this. Who in the world does Jesus think that he is? Uh, Jesus is making some pretty remarkable claims in this passage. Imagine if a respected teacher today, somebody like... um, like a James Peterson, James Peterson, Jordan Patterson, Peterson, whatever. You know, some guy named JP. Shows you how I was trying to be hip and cool and connected to the younger generation there. That went smooth. Jordan Peterson, followed by millions of, of young people on, on YouTube. Imagine if he came out and, and said, you've got to build your life on me. You've got to, got to build your life on on my teachings, and if you build your life on anything other than what I'm telling to you, your entire existence will eventually collapse into ruin. That would not go well. I I hope that would not go well. Who in the world says things like that? But here we have Jesus saying things like that. Who, Who does Jesus think that he is? Well, over the course of this Sermon on the Mount, I think it's become clear to us that Jesus understands himself, first of all, as the author and arbiter of Holy Scripture. Think how many times over the course of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said, has said things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. What he's saying there basically is, only I understand the essence and substance of the law. Only I understand what the Old Testament is really all about. That's an incredible claim. If a pastor made that kind of claim in the pulpit, 
you would fire him. I, I hope that you would fire him. By and large, we don't want, we don't expect our pastors to stand up here in the pulpit and say, now listen, I'm going to tell you something that, that goes against what you've been hearing from faithful preachers of the word now for hundreds of years. We don't want that. If, if I ever stand up in this pulpit and say, you have heard it said by faithful pastors of generations past, but I say to you, somebody needs to taser me immediately. I, I give you permission to do that. I want you to do that because that's not how pastors are supposed to speak. But that's, that's how Jesus spoke. Why? Well, because Jesus wasn't a pastor or, or he wasn't merely a pastor. The word pastor just means shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. He was not a shepherd. He was the shepherd. He was not a pastor. He was the pastor. He was not a preacher. He was the preacher. And and that's what was so amazing to the first people who heard this sermon. Matthew ends his summary of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, if you remember, Matthew told us at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, if you have your Bible open, if it's small print, you can probably see the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Back in Matthew 5, you might have to turn one page over. Matthew told us at the start of his summary of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus actually withdrew from the crowds in order to speak directly to the disciples. But now we're told that the the crowd was listening in. They were overhearing. They were astonished at this teaching because Jesus didn't teach like their teachers. The scribes and Pharisees, they simply talked about what was written in the law. They would say, well, now if you see in this passage, it says such and such, and I tell you that the best understanding of that is such and such. But Jesus didn't preach like that. Jesus preached as if he was speaking the very words of God. Jesus understood himself in a whole different way. He understood himself as the author and arbiter of Holy Scripture. He was the original author, and he was the authoritative interpreter. He was, in fact, he is, in fact, the Word of God. Now, there's something else here that we want to see. Jesus understood himself as the Word of God, but he also understood himself as the cornerstone of the eternal building of God. Remember, Jesus is saying here, you've got to build your life on me and my teachings if you want to survive the coming storm. Again, that's a really odd Uh, borderline inappropriate thing to say, unless you are Jesus, unless you understand yourself as the single remaining foundation stone in the house and building of the Lord, which Jesus did. Later in uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus will tell that famous parable that most of us know as the parable of the vineyard. It's a parable actually about how the ruin of Israel is largely Uh, to blame, or the the folks who are largely to blame for the ruin of Israel are, in fact, its terrible leaders. Uh, So the basic outline of the story, you probably remember, God planted Israel like a vineyard in the midst of the world. He expected Israel to yield to him a harvest of righteousness, but they did not. They did not because their leaders were generally corrupt and wicked men. And so in the story, uh, the, the owner sends a variety of messengers to try to get things back on track. 
course, that represents the Old Testament prophets. But the owners of the vineyard killed them. Finally, the owner sends his son, which, of course, represents Jesus. Most of the imagery in Jesus' parables on the bottom shelf, right? You don't have to go to seminary to figure out what's happening here. So the owner sends his son to try to get things back on track, and they kill the son. And then at the end of the story, Jesus asks the crowd that was listening to the parable, just what do you think, what do you think the owner, who of course represents God, what do, you, what do you think he will do to those terrible leaders? And they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's quite an ending. Jesus is is saying that because of the wicked, inept, corrupt leadership of Israel, God is grinding that house down to a single stone, the stone that the builders rejected. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I will be the only remaining stone from Old Testament Israel. God will grind that house down to a single stone and then rebuild up from there. And only if you are built up on that stone, that chosen foundation stone, will you survive the storm that is coming. God is going to raise up an eternal, enduring house built upon that one foundation stone, and he's going to add to that stone stones from Israel and from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. That's why the apostles, the original hearers of this sermon, said to their people, come to him a living stone. You see that? That's not accidental. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals. This is just Peter riffing on the Sermon on the Mount. This is just Peter riffing on the parable of the tenants of of the vineyard. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter says, come to him then, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, now he's talking to you, like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen impression, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Are you seeing that? So that's what's going on here. Jesus understands himself as the new and living stone, the cornerstone prophesied in Holy Scripture. The Old Testament prophets said that God was going to grind down the house of Israel to a single stone and then build up again from there. And Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, unless your life is built on me, on this stone, you will not survive the storm that is coming and you will not be included in the eternal kingdom of God. So that's who Jesus thinks he is. The author and arbiter of Holy Scripture and the foundation stone of the eternal building of God. That leads us to our second question. 
what does Jesus think is coming? Because there's a bit of an ominous tone uh, to this concluding section. Last Sunday, uh, Ryan walked us through a passage that, that I've referred to many times as the scariest passage in all the New Testament. Uh, it was actually kind of funny. We, we, we just divided up the Sermon on the Mount into its logical bits and paragraphs, and then uh, it kind of like fell by lot to, you know, I said, these are the weeks I'm going to be away, and, and this is the order that sort of everybody lined up, and, and this one fell to Ryan, and we all had a good laugh. Like, have fun with that, brother. You get to stand up and preach like the scariest sermon in the Bible, and then I don't know what you do. You just go out the side door and leave, I think. I don't know. But he did a fabulous job. That passage talks about how there's going to be a great separation coming between those who think they are saved and those who are actually saved. That's got to rattle you. How do you, how do you read that passage? How do you listen to a sermon on that passage and not be a little bit rattled? Listen, if I were to ask today, and don't, this is hypothetical, if I were to ask today for everyone in the room who thinks they're saved to raise their hand, I'm guessing 99% of the hands in the room go up. I would hope so. And there's probably one or two of you who are honest enough to say, I'm definitely not saved. But I'm thinking 99% of the, of the hands in the room go up. But, but Matthew 7, 21 to 23 seems to be saying that a great many of you are wrong. You think you are saved, but you're not. You, you look like you're saved, but you're not. And a storm is coming that is going to divide the visible church, the visible church right down the middle. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here, these words are obviously addressed to members of churches, to members of churches, to those who make the claim of being Christian, who profess discipleship, and who are seeking the benefits and blessings of salvation. Everything about the picture emphasizes that, and we see that it again is meant to show us the difference between the false and the true profession of Christianity, the difference between the Christian and the seeming Christian, between the man who really is born again and is a child of God and the man who only thinks he is. So that's the picture. Jesus is saying that not everyone here is truly rooted. And a storm is coming, a flood is coming that will serve to sort one kind of person from the other. So what kind of storm are we talking about here? Well, that's the benefit of a metaphor. Uh, you can be talking about a variety of things at once with a metaphor, and I think that's the case here. I think by this storm, this flood, Jesus is talking most immediately about personal difficulties. Jesus didn't promise any of his followers an easy road. On the contrary, he said, in the world, you will have tribulation. The Greek word translated as tribulation means Pressure, this is a direct quote from the dictionary, pressure, compression, affliction, distress of mind, distressing circumstances, trial, or affliction. 
Now, not to oversight Martin Lloyd-Jones here as if that were even possible, but he says, interpreting the metaphor of the rains that are coming, he says, I think he means, speaking of Jesus, I think he means things like illness. Anybody ill today? Loss. Anyone grieving a loss? Or disappointment. Something going wrong in your life. Grievous disappointment. A sudden change for the worse in your circumstances. Or overwhelming grief and bereavement. These things come for us all. But finally, of course, certain and inevitable, comes death itself. So, hard stuff. Hard stuff is coming for you. And if you are not truly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will wash you away. I read a really interesting article in churchanswers.com about two weeks ago. The article claims that the median worship size, so the median size of a worship service in the United States of America has shrunk by 18% from 2020 to 2022. Meaning, the storm of COVID-19, because what happened between 2020 and 2022? COVID. The storm of COVID-19 washed away nearly one in five professing Christians in America. Isn't that incredible? I find that deeply concerning because was COVID-19 even a serious storm relative to the storms that we've endured as a church throughout history? I mean, when you, when you compare COVID-19 to the persecution under Domitian or the Spanish Inquisition, does it even warrant a mention? I mean, I wonder, should the Lord tarry another thousand years and, and a historian write the, the story of the, of the church? By the way, have you ever thought about this? Should the Lord tarry for, say, another thousand or two thousand years? You know they'll be talking about us as the early church. Okay, that, let that thought blow your mind. Anyway, we'll come back to that another time. Whoa! Anyway, but should the Lord tarry even a thousand years and they write, and they write the history of Christianity, will COVID-19 even get a mention And yet it washed away. It washed away. One in five professing, professing Christians in our culture. How about that? A friend of mine said during the bad old days of COVID, he said, when we emerge from this crisis, the church will be smaller at the edges and stronger at the core. Hasn't that proven to be prophetic? There are more rains to come, my friends, making this teaching from Jesus all the more important. So we're talking about difficulties for sure, but then also I think we're talking about persecutions. Jesus spoke to his disciples. He warned them about that many times. In John's gospel, he's recorded as saying, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates the disciples of Jesus because they look and sound and walk like Jesus. 
which of course alerts us to the fact that the more, track with me on this, this is really important, the more concentrated the church becomes, right? Each time a storm washes through the church, it washes away professed believers who are not real believers, leaving behind what? A higher concentration of actual Christ followers, actual born-again, spirit-filled believers, right? So as this process is repeated over history, what you should get over time is a highly concentrated church, which means a church that will, to a greater extent, resemble the person of Jesus Christ thereby attracting a greater level of hostility from the world, resulting in further persecutions, which will further wash away any remaining professing believers, leaving behind a highly concentrated and greatly despised church towards the end. Jesus spoke about that reality in the Olivet Discourse. He said, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Do you see that? So we've got a concentrated church summoning a further persecution, resulting in a greater concentration. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see in the pattern? Each downpour further concentrates the church washes away false professors, leaving behind a church that looks and smells and sounds and walks a little more like Jesus, thereby attracting more hostility from the world, resulting in more intense persecutions, which wash away further persistent professors who are not truly rooted, leaving behind a church that completes the task of world missions. And then the end will come. And that leads to our third understanding of what Jesus is communicating with this flood imagery. I think he's talking about difficulties for sure. I think he's talking about persecution certainly. And I think he is talking about the eschatological crisis ultimately. The word eschatological is just a big fancy theological word. It means concerning the end, concerning the end. There is a crisis prophesied, Old Testament anew, at the end of the human story. It is often described using the imagery of a flood. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man is everywhere described as occurring during a time of unparalleled crisis. Now, you notice Jesus there, uh, very common activity in the prophets. We're going to be talking about this in Cornerstone U when we study Zechariah. It's very common for prophets to use colors lifted from Old Testament canvases in order to paint pictures of the coming eschatological crisis. They reach back to Old Testament canvases in order to 
anticipate and describe the future crisis. In the Old Testament, it was very common for the prophets to lift their colors from the stories in the Old Testament of the two great sieges endured by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Zechariah, for example, speaks about the people of God being surrounded and despoiled, their possessions seized, their families destroyed. Zechariah 14, verse 1, and the first half of verse 2 are so hard and brutal and graphic, I don't want to read them in church this morning because I don't want to distract you with the brutality. Go home and read them for yourselves. He describes a last great scourge. And then he says this, Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord, then the Lord, after an incredible scourge, after a storm, a crisis, the likes of which it is difficult to read the description of, such that it wipes away half of the remaining surrounded in battle church. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. If you don't understand the geography of Jerusalem, that's a way of saying he will provide a way of escape analogous only to the great parting of the Red Sea when the people fled from Egypt. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the way you'd want to leave is actually guarded by a huge mountain. So if you needed to leave in a hurry, good luck to you. But unless the Lord splits the mountain as once he split the waters of the sea. The Lord fights for us. The Lord makes a great way of escape. When? After we've undergone the greatest crisis and storm of human history. There's one last purifying storm coming, according to all the Bible. And it washes away fully half of the visible church. Then the Lord will go out and fight for us against those who've been fighting against us then, after half have been washed away. Why were they washed away? Why, why did they not endure to the end and so be saved? Because they were foolish builders. They built their house upon the sand. They listened too closely to the wisdom of the culture. They were too affected by the spirit of the age. So obviously the most important question for us to consider is this. What does it mean to build your house upon the rock? Again, that's a metaphor, obviously. But a metaphor for what? Given the stakes involved, there's nothing more urgent than for us to figure out what this metaphor means. What does it mean to build your house on the rock? I think it means first and foundationally to be connected to the person and work of Christ. I cited earlier from 1 Peter. Peter, of course, was one of the original hearers of this sermon, so we ought to be very interested in how he understood these metaphors. 
He told his people, you've heard this before, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. So Peter says, you have to be structurally connected to Jesus. You have to be in some kind of fixed, formal relationship with Jesus. All right, that's, that's the what. The question, of course, is, is the how. how. How then do we do that? How can we ensure that we're in some kind of fixed, formal, structural relationship with Jesus Christ? Again, Peter's very helpful here. In the sermon that he preached in the day of Pentecost, the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church, so I imagine it was on quite an important theme, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Many people were convicted, cut to the heart, the Bible says, and believed what Peter was saying. And they called out and they said, Peter, what should we do? Do you remember what Peter said? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and be baptized. That's the how. Now, not mere baptism, not baptism as a, as a religious rite, a splashing of holy water. No, that's not what Peter is calling for here. Repent and be baptized. He says, be baptized in faith. Baptism as an expression of repentance. That is how you become structurally connected to Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3, after talking about Noah's flood, isn't it interesting how Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, doesn't matter, they're using Old Testament stories to create New Testament anticipations. Does that make sense? So Peter, after talking about the flood as a metaphor for judgment, Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, to the way that God saved people in the ark, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And again, because he knows where our minds are going to go. Not as a removal of dirt. I'm not talking about splashing people with holy water. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, for a new heart, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So baptism, that is an appeal to God in faith, not mere ritualism, not mere washing with water, but real faith baptism saves you, Peter says. It puts you in structural relationship with Jesus Christ. It puts you in the ark. That's what Peter's saying here. And Peter was there when Jesus first preached this sermon and used these metaphors. He was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day that he made this application and gave this counsel to the people under his care. So I think this should matter to us. I will be honest with you, one of the things I understand the least about the evangelical tradition that I have been raised in is the cavalier attitude so many of us have toward baptism. 
It's very common to hear low evangelicals. And I don't mean low as in like not as good. Low evangelicals, meaning us, Bible-thumping evangelicals. I'm one of them. I got baptized in 1984 at King Bible Church. We were Bible thumpers. If you didn't have a Bible, we'd thump you with one. Okay? And I'm just saying, in my tradition, this is my tradition, I own it, I love it, I'm not going anywhere, but I will tell you, I find it so weird that Bible thumpers have such an unbiblical attitude towards baptism. So common to hear evangelicals say, well, pastor, all that matters is what I feel in my heart. If I love Jesus in my heart, if I've invited Jesus into my heart, then, then that's what saves me. Baptism doesn't matter. Baptism is just a ritual. Rituals don't save anybody. Therefore, you know, pastor, I may get baptized. I may not. I haven't decided. As you said, I have no idea how Bible thumpers develop such an unbiblical attitude towards baptism. Now, listen, I'm, I'm with you if what you mean is that just splashing somebody with a little bit of water from the tank doesn't do anything to anybody. I agree with that. A, a mere ritual doesn't save anybody for sure. But a ritual done in obedience to a command from our Savior and King in faith is a real thing. Amen? It's a real thing. It is a tangible expression of faith and allegiance. Here's an interesting thing. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but Baptists have only been awkward and cautious about using the word sacrament for about 100 years. If you go back further into our history, Baptists use that word all the time. But, but then it became overly associated with Roman Catholic ritualism, which Baptists wrote against all the time. And so we stopped using the word. And we use the other word. What's the other word for sacrament? That's not a trick question. Ordinance is the word we prefer, isn't it? Nine times out of ten, that's the word we use here. Ordinance. By the way, what does the word ordinance mean? It means something you are ordered to do. It's not an optionism. That's not a word. I'm trying to make that up. It didn't work. Meaning a lot of evangelicals think that the ordinances are optional, despite that they're called ordinances. Not optional, right? But anyway, the other word that is still perfectly acceptable to use is sacrament. Do you know what that word, where we got that word? We, we stole that word. The word sacrament originally was used in the Roman military to describe the Pledge of Allegiance that soldiers made to their unit. That's what baptism is. Baptism is you dying to King you and to Master Satan and rising again to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Now, if you do that in faith, because Jesus commanded you to do it, and because you really believe who he, that he is who he says he is, and you really believe in what he has done for you, and that those things can give you a clean conscience, a clean slate, a wide open entrance to your Father and Creator, if you really believe that, and you go under the waters as an expression of that, does that save you? You're not even sure how to answer that. Peter says it does. Peter says it does. Isn't that amazing? So how do you get structurally, how do you get structurally connected to Jesus? 
through obedience, the obedience of faith, through repentance and baptism. I'll just say it the way Peter said it. You need to be structurally, visibly, fixedly, and formally associated with Jesus. The living stone, the last remaining stone of Old Testament Israel. That's what Jesus is calling for here. Jesus says, you've got to be building your house on this rock. That takes us to the second thing. To build your house on the rock means to be entirely submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the beginning of a journey, not the end. In baptism, you die to yourself and you rise to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a lifelong commitment. D.A. Carson's is very helpfully here. The sermon, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon ends with what has been implicit throughout it, the demand for radical submission to the exclusive lordship of Jesus who fulfills the law and the prophets and warns the disobedient that the alternative to total obedience, true righteousness, and life in the kingdom is rebellion, self-centeredness, and eternal damnation. See that? It's not about slavish obedience to the law, but it is about genuine submission to Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. Not knowing some stuff, not saying some stuff. It is genuine, whole life submission to the person and lordship of Jesus Christ. It is taking his word as the word of God Almighty. It is dying to king self and rising to king Jesus. It means to sink your roots into the cornerstone. It means to grab on to the back of the shepherd's robe. It means to live your life under the sound of his voice. It means to carry your sins to the foot of his cross. It means to drink from the well of his Holy Spirit. It means to walk in the power of his enabling grace. A house like that will stand the test of time. A house like that will laugh at wind and wave. A house like that will shine with the light of the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. Oh God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you have shown us the path. You have told us what to do. And now we ask, oh God, command what you will and give what you command. Grant unto all of us persevering faith in the rock and cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be mindful of other options that are offered, other voices that come at us from the culture. Help us to be fixed on Christ alone, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame,
and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. That's where we want to end up. Father, grant us the grace to keep our eyes on Jesus. We ask in his precious name, amen.